or the question of God's justice. Now, one has to carefully use one's terms. If you're talking about suffering, suffering in and of itself is not a problem. Because suffering we could all see to be, have a certain kind of reason for that particular illness that we're suffering. Perhaps, it depends. The real issue is, is there evil in the world? And if it is, is it not a challenge to what we assert to be a world of justice? The question that we ask is, why do the righteous people suffer? Or even more powerful and more prominent, why do the average people suffer? You will find that as we go through Talmudic sources dealing with this issue, at the, Tal- the Talmud finds easily excuses, in quotes, or reasons why the righteous suffer. Being righteous means you, ha- you carry a special burden, and it means that's what you're going to, <clears throat> that's what you're going, the price you're going to pay for being righteous. It's the righteous has an obligation, responsibility of suffering for the sins of the generation. We'll come to that. But the more powerful question is, I'm not righteous, I'm an average person. And average people suffer. Why do average people suffer? Is this not a challenge to God's justice? Now, there are too many examples that we all know, that we've all experienced, to not take the question very seriously. I dare say that there's nobody that will escape this question throughout life. Every single person, God forbid, we pray doesn't happen, but every single person at one point or other is going to take this question to heart. Whether it's on the individual level where somebody that we love is ill, or on a national level where, whether it's a historical event that you empathize very strongly with, or if you read a particularly well-written account of the Crusades, or the pogroms, or the Holocaust, the problem is a real problem, and you want to know why does God allow the Crusades to storm into a town, rape, kill, and storm out of the town. And if you happen to be the wrong person at the wrong time, you pay a very difficult price for that. This issue was a real problem to the Tanakh biblical authors, and it's very real to the Talmudic authors. They dealt with this question on different occasions, as a real life issue. They suffered the Hurban ben Hamikdash. they suffered the pogroms, they suffered all this as well. And of course, you cannot lay claim to rabbinic leadership. Welcome, good to see you. Welcome back. I hope you had a good trip. You had a good trip. I had a good trip. I had a good trip. Such a good trip, I left my wife there. <laughs> all the kids. That's a great trip. <laughs> I would like to encourage everybody to enjoy the festivities this evening. We want to thank Linda and who else? I don't know who else. Uh, well, everybody who really puts it together. And Rhonda and everybody. Rhonda's is healthy. That's what I was told to say. Enjoy your own conclusions. <laughs> I am sure it happens to be good. Is it not? You can make good, healthy stuff. Joey says no, but you I You have to ask Joey. No, Joey doesn't know. <laughs> I think it's very, very possible. So thank you, everybody. We appreciate it. <laughs> now, so this issue is one which is very real to almost everybody. You cannot walk through life without suffering in some way which is beyond the pale, beyond what you consider appropriate. Obviously, it's different. A person may uh, may may have a, an illness of some sort, and they may think that's beyond what I can endure. Or the person may, may suffer on um, much more intensity than that. It might be a family member. And that would be unfair. People will raise this question in one context or another at one point or other in life. And we hope that it's less rather than more. We hope it's not our kids. We hope it's not our parents. We hope it's not friends of ours. We hope it's somebody else. But invariably, 
it's going to strike and the questions are going to be asked. And rabbis, to be real, at least from the biblical point of view and from the Talmudic point of view, had to have answers. It was not enough to not have an answer for the biblical and the biblical point of view. To say you don't know is not an answer. And to not have an explanation or a meaningful reason why this happened is not good enough. You tend or you may lose the very people you're trying to guide. So one has to have the answers. And certain why, why did the uh, Torah mm-hmm. have an Why was not an answer? If it was so important that people should have it, why wasn't it? Let's go through it. No, let's go. We'll go through it. Let's go through it step by step. Okay? Right. Now, interesting is that I find Syrians are unusual, amazingly unusual, in that they're able to isolate themselves with an incredible degree of, of gullibility and be able to <laughs> no you cannot call that but and it's only it's only <laughs> sorry I hope not <laughs> and it's I'm sorry I'm sorry I forgot the end of my sentence because everyone interrupted me I'm sorry Rabbi it was too tough to take the end of that when you say Siri is the I didn't say that Joey why did you say that just now you always cover your tracks in life is that not so you never know who's going to have the wrong the wrong tape at the wrong moment when we, when Joey made that statement, let me try to explain what Joey meant by this. <laughs> what I mean to say is that they're they're very able to get wise themselves intellectually and emotionally, and not raise the kinds of questions that many others have raised. Meaning, a, a Syrian could very easily go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington and not be shaken to his very roots. Somehow he's able to live with it, isolate it, say it happened, didn't happen to me, didn't happen to us, and it's it, and, and create a distance, a psychological distance. Maybe cause it didn't happen to us. Perhaps that's the reason why. But he's able to create that kind of that kind of distance and just walk by the most uh, explicit pictures and not feel challenged by it. The source of his, his trust in God, his emunah, his faith in God, is here. And whatever he sees in here is not impacted upon. Almost because his religion is not real. His religion is routinized. He does it. And whatever happens in real life does not impact upon what he believes. And we've seen that in numerous examples, both in terms of not being impacted upon by something like the Holocaust. It's almost as if the way we relate to the Crusades didn't happen to us, but the Holocaust happened to us. To me, not to family, but just 50 years ago to people that I know to grandparents that I know and to grandchildren whose grandparents I know if one were to see a number on another person's arm and you're not challenged and you're not stricken and you're not upset and you're not crazed by it then you isolate yourself and you can go through life saying look this is not my story I'm not affected by it when Acham Baruch had gone through the first Holocaust program we had in Bet 20 years ago it didn't join him excuse me didn't join him and, and I was going through the courses and seeing the movies and us. To me, it was um, a horrifying experience and, and a, an emotional experience. Not a pleasure, but it was an emotional experience of not being able to deal with my religious life, which was impacted upon by the Holocaust. And him, this was just maybe it was more secure, maybe it was more mature, maybe it's more I don't know what. But it was just amazing how easy it was for him to just deal with that and not break down. Whereas for those of us who were taking the course and living through it in some vicarious sense, it shook us. Syrians go through a lot of these kinds of things and deal with it. Maybe they're more healthy. They're more healthy that this doesn't... It's not just Syrians. I think all Sephardic Jews in North Africa were like that. 
That's an interesting point. I don't know. Well, I, maybe yes. You know what? Maybe well, yeah. Okay, they're good. Totally uh, maybe the Moroccan Jews, because under Vichy France, there were like a couple of days before the Americans landed, they were due to be deported. And wow. The Americans landed and that was it. So they, did they taste? Not really. <laughs> they didn't they taste never, it? No, they didn't. So that could be, but also because it's a form of religion that they have. For us, religion is life. It, it, it's so much part of our lives, socially, what you and I experience I don't know about in England but what we experience over here we grow up with it it's, it's in the air we breathe it's so much a part of what we do that it's and, and yet and just the, the Syrian rabbis to their credit generally are not exclusive tonight that's it got it thank you that they're they're able to simply just um to live it, it it's it just it's hard to say it's that religion is not intellectual for us it's simply something we do you're, you're born into it you live with it it's not a challenge to you we don't think about it very much and we just go through the motions of it cool, when I was in college I, my college roommate was having this horrible problem with his girlfriend because he was becoming more and more religious and she was not religious at all and every day it was a fight do we eat this not do this could we do this my sister was brought, brought, uh, was brought up and was never religious in any degree happened to marry a religious guy so she became religious it was not an, an alien thing to her so it was just this is what you do so she just went with the flow it was not a challenge to her before this other Ashkenazi girl could become religious she had to question and ask and do and think and um, I still didn't think and do and care just you want to become kosher we'll be kosher you, don't, you want to have Shabbat we'll do Shabbat you don't want to Shabbat we'll do Shabbat it was that simple it was, it was, something, it was like a dress that she took on or took off and that was, it was that simple for her and many of us are raised that way from the time we're very little just we see our friends our cousins our aunts everybody knows somebody who's religious whether you may or may not be we know somebody who's observant again it could be a relative it could be a, a family a grandparent we all see it and we're not isolated so it's, and it's not an intellectual experience it's, it's, a, it's just simply part of life the most irreligious people that I know make you do Friday night the most irreligious you just do it it's just what Syrians do you keep kosher. We just do it. By contrast, as I think I mentioned on another occasion, I'm doing a lot of Ashkenazic weddings in the shul, and then all these assimilated or quasi-assimilated couples that I'm marrying, not one out of the 15 that we've done or 20 we've done in the last year, not one agreed to have a kosher home. What kosher home? That's what my grandparents did. It's incredibly alien to them. And why do they want to get married in the shul? It's only it's pretty. Some reason is that I ask that question. It's a very beautiful building. People say it's the nicest synagogue on the East Coast. They say between North, from North Bergen County all the way down here, down to here. You know, and I haven't gone further. Joey said that. Joey, tell Joe Batesta you said that. Okay. You're not getting a seat there. That's it. They they think it's just a beautiful building. That's you know one. Sometimes they have grandparents who insist on a kosher wedding. And, you know, various reasons like that. One person, a woman calls me up yesterday, desperate, could she have her bat mitzvah in our shul? She's from Marlboro. I said, uh, why? She said, well, my rabbi said that we can't, that if we have it in his shul, it's conservative, the, the procedures they should have, the girl has to read from the Torah. I said, so? It's a problem. So, she, you know, I, I do it, fine. I have nothing you know, to do with me. And she said, her husband's traditional. He's very traditional, I respect it, and he will not, cannot live with his daughter reading from the Torah. 
So we had to find a shul that, you know, and we want you to be involved, we want you to teach her, and you, you know, I said, that's fine. She said, do you have any issues? She says, no, she can do whatever she likes. I said, the only issue I might ask you not to have it in the shul proper, but have it, you know, have her speaking in the social hall or in the lobby or whatever. But other than that, it's fine with me. And there are many people who have that traditional sense and they want to do it in a, in a synagogue of this type. So either for aesthetic reasons or for some for kosher reasons. But again, none of them, not one, would agree to have a kosher home. And even in the most traditional, where the sister of one of the people married a Lubavitch person, and at the wedding there were half Lubavitches there, they would not commit to a kosher home. And I was shocked. I mean, your sister married a where we know, we're aware, and they went through all of Mikveh with the bride and everything else, did all that. Kosher home is just so wiggy for them. They just can't conceive of it. Two sets of dishes? <laughs> Be reasonable, Rabbi. We can't afford one. Right. No, none of them upward home. The grandparents did. And, and that's the first thing that goes because when you go to a public school, you can't keep kosher because you're eating, you know, lunch in school, your friends are eating, you're eating, you're going to friends outside the home. Look, even yeah, over here. We still have a kosher home. I was in public school. We weren't kosher, but we had a kosher home. But that slowly bends, especially when you're invited to other friends' homes. You know, when, when my kids go out uh, to the JCC homes, Ashkenazi, they can't eat in their homes. You know, and, and that's always a problem. And, and it's, um, that slowly erodes the base unless you're really committed to it. And it's more expensive and it's difficult sometimes and it's a lot of things like that, especially when you're going back 30 years. In other words, their parents are now married 30 years. So going back to today, it's much easier. Every full time you have, you have a whole story of kosher. But 30 years ago, you didn't have that. How many kosher products were on the market 30 years? So it's very difficult. So they don't have all that. So something as simple as that to me, to us, is crazy to most other people. To most other people. But isn't the way it used to be though? In, you know, in the 1700s, 1600s, everybody was like that. Was, was like what? Like everybody, all the Jews kept Shabbat. It was yeah. normal. Everybody was kosher. That was yeah. It was very much part of life. Part of life. That's the way but, you live your life. Yeah, exactly. One one way or the other, you lived your life that way. Very few people to challenge that. So before Germany. Yeah. Before the 18th. Before the 18th. Before, before the Enlightenment. Before the Enlightenment. Yeah. That was a very strong part of the Ashkenazi culture, being as Amer- being like Americans, and rising the corporate ladder and eating out. And look, again, a lot of people have that problem today. Certain businessmen are entertaining all day long, you know. And now, again, it's easy to go to kosher Chinese or kosher Italian. You go to all. This. But again, ten years ago, you had a problem. You either went to kosher pizza with your uh, two hundred thousand dollar account. Or you sat there and, and you know you kind of went like this for the beracha and you're not hungry and you kind of had a salad and it became very difficult you know and, and it wasn't a thing that happened it was very rare to assert you know your kashrut and it, it's difficult and still guys go Bible goes to uh, Arkansas where literally they haven't seen a Jew in their life and you don't eat this you eat this it's difficult it's sometimes difficult in any case the Syrian don't you see a growth in the intellect, intellectualization in the community? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no doubt. No doubt. I'm talking about the average kind of person. In other words, how many Syrians do I know that lost their faith, in quotes, because of the Holocaust? Zero. How many Ashkenazim do I know? Loads. No, but that's not what, that's much more personal than that. It was more able, personal, but it's also their, their religion. Their, you know, there are people where. No, no, that's true. The only people in their family that are left. If, yes, or they know somebody who only something like that. But it's also because they, they practice religion differently. They are much more intellectually open to it and close to it, and they don't make a commitment before they think it through. We are born into the commitment, and it's comfortable to be be in that commitment. Uh, so we don't you, have to intellectualize. We don't have to. Maybe we should because it makes it more meaningful, but it's also very risky. 
And the rabbis never encourage it. The rabbis don't want you to think about it because then you run the risk of, of losing it. There's one person who had this huge question. I don't, I, some of you know him. He's some of your, your ages. And I recall that 25 years ago, on the beach, we had this super argument or discussion about 20 years ago. And um, he was an atheist. Because it was cool to be an atheist. He didn't know too much philosophy, he didn't know anything about it, but he was an atheist. I went through the whole discussion, issue, da da da. 20 years, I didn't say 20 years. He ended up, he was teaching in, in Sephardic High School, teaching English literature, and he was the intellectual and everything else like that. 20 years later, he's very religious. Why? His kids bar mitzvah, his kids this, that. But you have children, and really, bottom line is you want your kids to be part of the, at least the norm of the community. You just can't maintain an atheist, have an atheist. my father's an atheist. Who's going to be friends with you? <laughs> it's true. I mean, it just doesn't work. In our community, it doesn't sell. Yeah, but it sounds like he didn't believe it at the beginning anyway. No, no, he, oh, you, you said he wasn't an intellectual, but he, he didn't he come thought to he just, was. What? He thought he was, and he went, you know, he went through college, and maybe had a master's in English, and he, and he thought that was the yeah. thing. I mean, I didn't... That was as deep as it went. That was as deep as it went. You know, as deep as it went, and, and you know, when you... In any case, so at the end of the story is that he became either pro forma or actually religious. Why? Because it's easier. And it was all around and it's all around him. And just better for your family, for your wife, for your kids. Again, to be an atheist is nothing that you want to write home about in our community. You're really scorned. And people, bottom line, by fact, people need rabbis. You know, for, for weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, and bris and all that. You need to be part of the circle. You just need. You're not going to knock on mitzvah your kid. And every one of the Ashkenazi people I talked to all said, we want our kids to marry Jewish. It's very important to us. And I said, but how are they going to if you don't keep a kosher home? And that just gets them thinking of the connection relationship. There are people like that in the world. My only point is that our form of religion is different. I'm not saying it's better, we're saying it's different. And therefore we deal with the problem of evil. Hello. Therefore we deal with the problem of evil very differently. It's not as challenging at, to us generally as it is in the Ashkenazic world. Although, again, perhaps because we're not intellectual and we don't read Jewish history and well, we don't read about the programs, we don't read about the Christians, we, we don't read about all these horrifying pages of Jewish history wherein Jewish blood has been spilled. But we sort of distance ourselves with it and therefore we don't see as much questioning, as much challenging as you see in the Ashkenazic community. You could teach a whole year in Hillel High School and I get one kid raise any questions about God's existence. If you go into Flatbush, when I went to Flatbush, every, every grade had its atheist. Whether it was Joel Rosen or whether it was in my year, it was, you know, it was always, uh, one kid had it. Just to be an iconoclast, just to raise questions, he would always, he always had that. Flatbush had it, maybe not nowadays. You never have that in Hillel. You know, you study all the Holocaust, nobody dreams of raising the question, why did Hashem allow this to happen? Why did God, why did God allow it? It's not an issue. Isn't there a different intellectual stage, like not a high school stage? Maybe? Not to look compared to Flatbush. Ashkenazic kids raise questions. They're more critical, more analytical. And intellectual. No, we have kids we put to Princeton, and, and, and we just don't think that way. We have very bright kids in this community, extremely bright kids. They do the whole nine yards. Sorry, but not that. Way. But not. They don't think in that way. It just. I too. I don't think it's too challenging. I'm not afraid of it. It's, you know, it doesn't dawn upon them. God is too real to them and just works too well. And some people are afraid to raise the question because then you may get punished of some sort. Or maybe they're too secure. Or too secure. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any of these reasons. But our basic question over here, and I just give you all that of an introduction, almost offensively, because you may not have the issue that I have over here with this. You know, it, it, I'd be surprised if there were uh, a week went by in my life since I started sense where this has not been a horrifying issue to me. 
either intellectually, empathetically, you read a book and, and, you, and, you, and you go crazy over why did this happen? And you struggle and you think and you write papers and you do all that. And also personally, when you see friends of yours that are your age or younger uh, going through one illness or another and some not making it and you do the funerals and you say, why did this happen? This guy was a good guy. He was a righteous person. He was everything that I would want to be. And yet he doesn't make it. And, and you just feel devastated by that. And the kids may, his kids may not raise the question and they just take it in strides. Look, this is terrible. This is what happens. This is what God wants and it's okay. You know, but I don't have that luxury of doing that all the time. So the basic question over here is how does God allow the evil to be, per- to be per- uh, perpetrated in our midst? A God who is omniscient, all good, omnipotent, means he's all powerful, he's all knowing, he knows evil, he's all powerful, can control evil, and he's all good. And yet evil exists. Does not make sense. It's, it's an equation which does not equal each other. Do we all understand why that equation is what the issue really is? If God is all powerful, do anything he wants, and he's all good, he only wants good, and he's all knowing, so he knows about evil, then has he allowed evil to exist? Right? That's the basic question in its, in its capsule form. So now, the Tanakh, ironically enough, deals with the issue in, in distinct ways. Number one, we all know this, and we don't have to, you know, review it. The Tanakh does say that suffering occurs very often as a result of sin. It's probably one of the most common themes throughout Tanakh. Punishment or suffering comes about as a result of sin. Give me an example that you must know of. Okay, so you find that where it's told to you that if you are suffering, then the Berachot Kilot in the book of Ayakra, and again repeated in the book of Kita, in Devarim Kitavon, that if you experience suffering, it's because you sinned. Right? That's one way. Give me a concrete example besides the abstract examples. Miriam. She sinned and she got Sadat. Sodom and Amorah. The Mabul. Adam Vechava. Adam sinned, you got thrown out of Gan Eden. Kain and Hevel. Repeatedly. One major theme of Tanakh is that if you sin, you will pay a price for that. Right? Point number one. So, there are many examples culminating in the, in the abstract statements that where there is sin, there is punishment. Right? Now, however, does that mean that all, this is a mistake that we all make, and most people will make this mistake, painfully so. It's a very painful mistake where does that mean that if I have experienced suffering, therefore I sin? In other words, we just said how prominent it is, the teaching, that where there is sin, there's going to be punishment. Right? Sin means punishment. It's a natural moral law. Same way that there are natural laws of gravity and other natural laws, so too there is a natural moral law. What's the natural moral law? If you violate the moral law, you steal, you commit adultery, you, 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 you kill, whatever you do, or you commit any kind of ritual sin, you're going to pay a price for that. In the same way, there are natural laws, there are moral laws. You break a natural law, you pay a price. You jump off the building, the natural says you're going to fall down. It's a natural law, gravity. So too, if you break the moral law. You commit adultery, you're going to pay a price for that. Right? I had one situation where somebody's wife got very, very sick, and he was very upset about it, and told me, why? Because I committed adultery. I on a trip, I did this and this and this and this. Devastated. He was, I was, uh, this is crazy to me. Very close friend of mine. But I asked him, maybe yes. Maybe yes. No, not maybe, no, no. I didn't say maybe yes to what you think. 
Now maybe yes, that that's why. I said, why would God punish your wife? So that doesn't make sense to me. You have to do teshuvah and kaparan, whatever it is, for yourself what you did was wrong. But don't, don't equate the two. Don't say that because I did this transgression, she's suffering. And he was devastated because he saw it as a cause and effect kind of a thing. But no, we should not think cause and effect in this way. That's a very scary question. I can't. I have a hard time entertaining even that as a question. Because it affects someone else, or would no? You because I don't. Because it doesn't make sense person. to me. Why would God destroy the victim? The, uh, okay, but what about if why he got sick? Why, why wouldn't he? Oh, the victim. The victim. Yeah, right, right, right. He had a guilty conscience. Anything that right. happened, he would say that's because of what I did. Okay, whatever it may be. His kid got sick, or he fell. Or Absolutely right. He, he would blame it on that. Right. You but could you entertain the question if it was him that? God forbid they got something. Well, all right, look, that, okay, that's, that's easier to deal with. So all Tanakh tells me, yes. All Tanakh tells me that that might happen. And again, that is what a lot of people think. So we don't have to really, you know, belabor that point, that yes, indeed, we all accept the fact that certainly if there's transgression, there may be punishment. The question is the converse true. Meaning, if there is suffering, does that mean there was sin? Always. No. Right. No. Oh, always, yes. Oh, yeah, right. So we, we look through, and certainly you mentioned. Iyob. is an interesting example, because Iyob is the most prominent teaching which we had seen last year, where he didn't sin, and yet he suffered. So we're seeing over here a whole new mode. It's too easy almost. God almost says it's too easy. I don't want you to think every time a guy is suffering, therefore he sin. Because you know what you end up with? Theoretically. Or you end up with another, you end up with a world where if I see any suffering, I won't help that person. Why? Because if you're suffering, you must deserve it. Which of course is Calvin's theology. Calvin's Puritanism said, if you're poor, or if you're miserable or abject or ill, you deserve it because that's what God wants because you sin. And if you're rich and good, uh, rich and, and healthy, that means you're good. And of course, but the rich guy might be a horrible town bully and he might be the most evil person. Let's take another example, which I think we had seen last year, although I'm not sure. In Bereshit Tedzayim, we had, we had saw what we had seen, that's one of the high points of Tanakh. Well, in you have the brief in Abitarim, right? And perhaps we had read it. We're in God says to Abraham, look, if you want to be part of this covenant, this is what's going to happen. Your children are going to be slaves for four hundred years, right? One is going to be slaves, going to be exiled and enslaved, they are in your time and afflicted. Now, you have to raise the question. Why? Abraham should raise the question. Why? Why do, does my children, do my children have to be enslaved and afflicted and all that for 100 years? I don't understand God. Why? He doesn't say that. He accepts that as part of the deal. Right? He doesn't say that. They didn't sin. They did nothing, nothing wrong in that pasu. Oh, that. Yeah, nothing wrong. Later on. Later on, correct. Later on. No, no, no. Well, that's an, 
a strange answer if, if, to okay, solve my problem, but if, it's not if our problem. If said, no, forget it, I don't want you to go through it, would they not sin and not Wait, you're going too fast to me. <laughs> in, our, in our context, say it again. In our context of that pasuk, right? It says, "What is it?" It's not good. That also, in that context, there's no sin. So I am asserting, which you are questioning. I'm asserting that there you see suffering without sin. You're saying, in a striking fashion, that no, because God knows that they're going to sin 2,000 years from now, that's why He's punishing them beforehand. He's just telling them about what's going to happen. No, why are they going to suffer? They're going to sin. They're going to sin. He's telling them. When? No, they're not going to sin. He doesn't, he doesn't say they're going to sin. He just says, in that well, they left that part. They couldn't say the whole thing. Yes, he could. That's a very important ingredient this whole thing. That if all sin brings punishment, fine. But he doesn't say that there. It's five to say, But God is not predetermined sin. You know, that's a very difficult question. If God knows it, is he going to punish because he knows I'm going to sin two years from now? It's not fair. No, but the punishment came after the sin. No, no, they didn't sin. Up to that point, they didn't sin. But Ron is talking about... No, Ron is... Ron is saying that because they said 2,000 years from now, that's what you're saying. They're going to sin, so they can punish them with Galut of Mitzrayim earlier. They didn't know he says Warm Zion. Not at all. That's nothing to do. Okay, but nothing to do with this context. No, not at all. Not, yeah, not at all. Doesn't say that there. There it's very. No, I mean, that's one. Your way is interesting because it's a way of solving the problem that I'm raising. Namely, why should these Jews suffer 400 years? So you think, well, I have some sin they're going to do 20 years from now, so I'm going to punish them like this. But again, why are you punishing the great-great-great-grandchildren for what their great-great-great-grandparents did? So I can't buy that. So rather, like, rather, I'm saying that we all learning over here that besides the basic biblical concept that wherever there is sin, there's going to be punishment, Besides that, right? There's also suffering without sin. So now you raise the question, why is it so? Why should there be suffering in that context if there's no sin? What do you think you could answer? Why should a person suffer? Mold. Okay, good. Build a character. Build character. Mold them. Build a character. Does, is that a legitimate answer? It's not the whole answer. Might be. Might not be. I mean, everything that we're saying No, is it what we mean by the question? Does it make sense to you that suffering may mold a character? Yes, it depends yeah, how sure. how hard you make them right. suffer. Okay, we could live with it to a certain extent, but then when you want to see you could change yeah. also. It could change. It could mold. Now, fit that answer into our context. What God is saying over here in this context of Bereshit Tezayim is that if I want you to be God's chosen people and not do so, I need something from you. What I need from you to be God's chosen people is a sense of what it means to suffer. Because what I want you to do in the world is to what? Change people. No, more specifically. 
No. To relieve suffering. I want you to show compassion. I want you to relieve suffering. I want you to see a poor person and give him bread. I want you to see somebody sick and have empathy for that person. So the only way that you could possibly teach how to relieve suffering is if you suffered yourself. If you were hungry and you know the horrifying pains of hunger, then you will feel hopefully empathetic and compassion somebody's really hungry. If you were never hungry and you never know what it means to be hungry, you have a, always a well-stocked refrigerator, you always have healthy snacks there all the time. That's cool suffering. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm enjoying you suffering. <laughs> so if you always have that, now we would agree that unless you're an unusually empathetic person, which takes training and understanding and maybe a certain natural ability as well, that you're not going to feel the same way. Now, all of us, again, will meet people that will experience suffering and they may come to us for advice, for concern, for care, and they want you to listen. Now, some of you, no doubt, I don't necessarily a man or woman kind of a thing, will be extremely empathetic. Somehow you'll be able to put yourself in that person's place incredible fear. Let's say uh, you're driving uh, uh, through the West Bank and you, you're stuck in Beit Lechem from between Ephraim and Yerushalayim. You have a flat tire and, and your life is really threatened. I tell the story. And, uh, and I'm, I'm starting to sweat because of the... not because the air is broken, but I'm starting to sweat because I'm feeling that scary feeling of a hundred Arabs surrounding your car and setting it afire. And now you could either say, wow, or you could really start to sweat with me. Or say so what? Right, exactly. Or you can hear the story of somebody else's child who's really sick in the hospital with some kind of terrible disease, and you could somehow place yourself, so empathy means, into that person and say, what would be if it were my kid? And you start crying, because that child, not your child, but you understand what it means if it were your child. So some people are naturally empathetic, some people learn to be empathetic. Look, a, a good social worker, a good psychologist, a good clinician, learns to be empathetic. Because if he doesn't understand your pain, how can he solve your pain? How can he deal with your pain? It's the first thing you learn, which not all psychologists are good at, but the first thing you learn as a therapist is how to be empathetic. Don't solve his problem. Listen to what that person is saying. That happened to me today. I had a two and a half hour conversation with a person, and at the end of this two and a half hour says, you know, you solve my problem, but you shouldn't hear me at all. You don't know how much I'm suffering. You don't know how much I'm, this is my, my problem. You don't, you don't, you were terrible. You really hit me over the head. And he's right. But I told him, you're right. When you walked in, I knew I could either empathize and make you leave my office feeling wonderfully well. And I heard you and I knew, and I, that's what one can do. One, you, you develop an ability for that, how to empathize with the person. Or, but you would have walked out of here happy, but not one step closer to solving your problem. I chose to solve your problem by giving you concrete advice. Do this, this, and this. You have to just to survive. To not get smashed in the stress that you're in. So, I chose consciously to solve your problem and not, you know why? Because for 10 years of talking about this problem, I told them. Or, or, or 7 years. And 7 years I was empathetic. Mm-hmm. And, and you walked out of here happy. Sorry? It's a very long time. And you've seen therapists for seven years, and you've done everything for all this stuff, and we, we're all empathetic. But we want to solve your problem by now. 
is a long time, seven years. And until you take these steps, you ain't getting nowhere. So, I, now I was wrong, because I really didn't, he says, you don't know how much I'm suffering, before my answer to that. I said, you're right, I, I chose this position because I want to solve your problem. But he said to me, you didn't understand, you didn't hear, everybody's dumping on me, my parents and my this and my that, they're all smashing my face. And I needed you to understand what I'm, what I'm feeling. He's right. I was a bad counselor. I gave great advice, but didn't make a difference. You know, so till, I, till he sort of understood, says, at the end, he was happy that he got the advice, but he still really wanted to be baby. I didn't want a baby. I'm not baby, a 30-year-old guy who's got to do certain things. So that, that was my feeling. But sometimes that's exactly the person he needs, not to be baby. But he needed it. From his point of view, he needed it. But it means that he really didn't hear me. So my advice was irrelevant. It depends what he until ends up he, doing. If he, he uses decided, your advice, then it he works. Will, but if only until he smashed me, because he cares about me, and he smashed it, you stink, and I was able to explain why I did what I did, did he smile at the end of the conversation? So I'm just questioning, does he have to smile? The question is, is he going to use the advice? He wouldn't use it because he didn't hear it. A person who is in agony, emotional agony, is not going to hear you. He's suffering. And he, he's not going to hear my advice. I could solve every problem that he ever had in his entire life. But if he doesn't absorb the message, he's not listening to my message. He wants to hear empathy. He only wants to talk, as a matter of fact. And this other cute issue was really, it was a great story. It was really a great story. This is an issue where a guy comes in, his kids get his daughter's engaged, or son's engaged, whatever it is, has a terrible time with his in-laws. Right? They're getting married, how do you get invited? Ashkenazi and Syrian. I had that problem. Right? I had that problem horrible, right? So I just listen. What should I do? Just cut out the invitation, I want too much, I can't, they're there, they're Ashkenazim, they stink, they're there, they're there, the whole thing. All right. She goes, yeah, yeah. And I was being very empathetic. Fantastic. I'd say one word. Not one word. I was spent an hour, an hour from six in the morning till seven. So doesn't just listening. I said, okay, call me. Um, just call me, and we'll talk more about it. So, okay, I see him on Saturday, he tells me, all solved, thank you, Rabbi. <laughs> I, I didn't say a word, I'm telling you. I said, what happened? He says, they were great, they took down, they took less invitations, and they were fantastic, and I'm going to give them double now the invitations because they took half what they wanted. I'm so happy, thank you, thank you, thank you. I didn't say one word. It was such a classic case of hearing the guy, got it off his chest, beat them up through me, it worked. And of course, I didn't think it was going to work out so nicely. But it was just so, it, sometimes these things work, it's just so happy. He came, he hugged me, it all worked out. And I didn't do a thing. Not one thing. I know, what would I have done if he called me? What would I say? Be tough. I don't want to tell him. I don't know. Don't be tough. Did you ever get married? Me or him? No, the guy who sent out the invitation. Yeah, the No, no, they just got engaged. Oh, okay. Wait! That was another fight. That was another fight. Big time fight. The Ashkenazi guy refused. Oh no, not refused. The Ashkenazi guy. He was yelling at the Syrians. And the night. Oh, I thought you put a different date. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They're not married yet. He came. She came. No, did you guys get together right before you came? Kind of no, it turned out that he objected to that. He objected to that. He, would, he didn't stand for that. I'm not standing for that. I'm not standing for 700 people waiting. That was his Ashkenazi perspective on all this. 
So it was. A, this was the Ashkenazi guy. Yeah, the Ashkenazi guy. He hated the Syrian, right? That was the sign. <laughs> That's what it really was. Okay. In any case, coming back to over here, so suffering can make the person. Wait, suffering can make. I think that it's suffering makes a person stronger than Sometimes, perhaps. Sometimes, perhaps. the person maybe and it's making empathize, empathize with somebody who else is Right, so that's the point over Why here. Why have suffering in the first place if we don't know what he has empathize with each other? Because the world is created imperfect. Now, I don't know what, we don't know, I don't know whether God created an imperfect world intentionally or he gave us a world and we messed it up. We're not sure. All we know is that we're put in the world relatively late on the world scene. We're here now, all of a sudden, either 1800 before the company with Abraham, or 1300 before the company with Muhammad Sinai, with the Torah being given, and he's telling us, look, I have a messed up world. I want you to change it. I want you to do tikkun olam. I want you to mend the world. I want you to go out there and fix the world. Do something good. Right? And so what do you want from me? God, what should I do? Well, there's a lot of pain out there. Now, again, I don't know whether he created pain, the creator was created, free will created the pain, whatever it may have been. There's a lot of pain, a lot of horror. Human nature, not human nature, jealousies, uh, whatever it may be. There's a lot of pain. I want you to heal the world. To be that, you to be a certain kind of person. So we learn, perhaps, from the slavery of Egypt, how to be more empathetic. You'll say it doesn't work. You know a lot of Jews who are not empathetic. Right? But I would say that that's the intent and that if a Jew is somebody who studies the Sabbath slime, puts it on his tefillin, says it two times or three times a day with his Kiryat Shema, and he wears the seat that it's the minus three yom, remember Egypt every single day of your life, day, night, you are so suffused, and you even have a holiday once a year where you reenact the entire event. If you get the point of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, you become empathetic. And the Torah will say in fact, Love the stranger. You know why you love the stranger? Because you were strangers. You know what it's like to be a stranger in a foreign land. Now again, if we read that pasu, hello. Don't do that. Don't only mess you up. Sorry. What? what? That's why you have to do it. You do everything you mean. Then you won't pick up because you mean. Don't see. I'm sure there's not. One second. If one were to read this and and you really know it and you reenact it and you see a stranger coming into your town. What do you do? Torah tells you, love the stranger because you are a stranger, you know how it feels. It's a curious learning. If you eat the food of the Egyptian, of the Jews who came out, and you read and you think and you know it, you should become more compassionate. If it tells you, see a widow, and the widow is now the subject of perverse justice, there's nobody to protect her. Torah tells you, do not afflict the widow. You know what it's like to suffer. Now again, I don't know if it, I, I, I think it works. I think Jews are known to be a more compassionate people. Read. It's such a fantastic thing to read. Now, we may have read part of it last year. Mark Twain speaks about the Jews. And why Mark Twain? Because who's Mark Twain? What does he know about anything Jewish? He wasn't even English. How does he know anything about anything in this world? Is a, is a common author. What do you write? Uncle Barry Finn? What else? A common author. One of the greatest. Tom Sawyer. He happened to have been. He happened to have been, but he's not appreciated as a... Sorry? Which one? By Mark Twain? You heard of it. Am I illiterate? Oh, it's Mark Twain? Let me look it up. That sounds interesting. So he does seem... When I read Tom Sawyer and I read Huckleberry Finn, I wasn't impressed with the depth of his thought. 
it wasn't existential, so I didn't care about it from that point of view. It had nothing, it said nothing to me. Nothing. It's like Thomas Hardy, turning an eight. Mill on the floors. You're on the floors, George Eliot. Yeah. You have to read letters to the early people getting more out of them. I know, yeah, because he wrote about the Jews. Yeah. And he just said, it's such a worthwhile thing to read. Jews are more compassionate. He says it. He says, I don't know why they respect the elders, never in the streets, they care of their own. It's all more twain. Good evening, love. That's You remember. <laughs> it wasn't an easy wow. story. <laughs> but that's suffering. Oh, every man goes through. Yeah, but Jewish women are more compassionate. <laughs> 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 How to explain that, Big Sean? I had a client, a health organization, and he tells, and then we also have another client, uh, a nursing home, Jewish nursing. He says, he goes, Jews, they really know how to take care of their uh, Isn't it's, it's interesting. I mean, again, you read Mark Twain, it's, just, it's a fantastic ten pages by the Jews, because I wouldn't have thought that he was such a great observer, but he was. He was very observant, and he really saw this in the 1850s, 60s, saw about the Jews. So, are they more compassionate? Does the system work? It's an open question. But again, one can argue that that's the point of the suffering. Not because you sin, but only to become a better person. That would be the rationale. Yeah. But if you take it away from the Jews, it obviously should apply to all humankind, not just the Jews. What should apply? No, the suffering, the idea of human beings suffering and not suffering. And becoming more compassionate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you look at take people like in Bangladesh who have floods one year and, Horrible, and, right. and famine the next year and, and misery all the time. They must have the most character than anybody in the world. I mean, how do you... You probably need another ingredient, ingredient other than just suffering. Right. You need something else. Uh, and that's clearly true. There are many people who suffer that are cruel, saying that uh, I went through suffering and you could suffer. So you need another ingredient. You need that kick in the teeth which tells you, alleviate the suffering. Don't enjoy the other person's suffering. Alleviate it. You need something else, a higher authority, that's going to tell you, now that you feel the pain of the other person, do something about it. Because uh, you're obviously right, but I don't think you're going to find, you know, the black community is notorious for this, of not caring about their own, not going back. I mean, does Michael Jordan go back to the black community and say, I, 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 I grew up this way, or, or any of these other people saying, I grew up this way, I know what you're going through, and now I'm going to help you? They're notorious for not doing that, for, for raising themselves up, those who have the natural ability, and leaving. You know, and occasionally one goes back to run a basketball clinic once every six months. You know, you have some other... Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, that's the irony of it. You would think if you were raised by it as an abused child, you would not do that. It doesn't work. You're right. Because you need something else. Something else means you need a certain stability, certain healthy attitude. You need something else which is going to make you into that better person. And you use the history that you've gone through as a propellant forward to make the world a better place. You know, you wonder, I mean, which other religion, you know, teaches, certainly not pagan, and not Islam, Christianity maybe, that your job is to go out and feel the pain of others and make the world a better place. Not convert the world. Note that well. Christianity was missionary. We're there to make you into a good Christian. That's what we're doing. Jews are not here to make anybody a good Jew. We have no mandate whatsoever to tell anybody to become Jewish. What's our mandate? That they can allow which die, make the world a better place. Which means observe the not seven mitzvot. That's all. <coughs> no, at the minimum, not to let them be a pagan. Right. Believe in God, don't be a pagan, right. And why? Because if you're, if you're a pagan, you have no morality. Pagans will not have morality. Because you have so many gods. So you have so many moral systems. But if you have one god, one system, one morality, follow it. 
So that would go hand in hand with morality as well. Because my point over here is that the Torah gives you those two answers. You suffer because you sinned, and you suffer to become a better person. Right? And we have Job, and we have this Pasuk, all which leads in that right and same direction. Right? Is suffering for the end of becoming a better person a just world? Is that just? I'm suffering to shape my character. Does that make it just? Would you think that's a good element of the world? It may not be pleasant. Is it just? Would you, would you challenge God on that issue? Yeah. You think it's not just? I don't see a reason. The reason is that the only way to make a person into a better person but is... God could have made that person into a better person. No. God gives you a carte blanche. It gives you a, a free will. He gives you carte blanche and he makes you suffer so that you can end up the way he wants it. Right, but you chose it that way, or it makes you into a better person. Forces you into being what you want to be. No, it doesn't force you. Because you can through the suffering. No, not necessarily. Well, a, not necessarily through the suffering. You may not. Many people will suffer, not become better people. It's almost a gold too, but you can resist it. If the bottom line principle in Jewish ethics is free will, you have the free will to always resist, and he'll even mess you up even more by not even making you suffer all the time. Because then it's not really free will. It's only a perfectly balanced system. Obviously, if I always suffer, if I don't show compassion, I'm going to show compassion quickly because I don't want to suffer every single moment. But I won't. You'll only use it this much of suffering to make you build your character and then it'll leave you two months or two years or 20 years and see if you really learned the lesson or not. Some of us will, some of us will not. And not all of us will go through that same experience. Some of us will be empathetic without suffering and some of us will need the suffering to make us into empathetic people. To become part of God's chosen people, you have to achieve on your own, perhaps, that level of empathy. Let's say a person has that empathy. Okay, he's free. God says, why should this guy suffer? If you were to make the empathetic person suffer, that might be unjust. But, if one is empathetic, or one is not empathetic, God's thinking, what should I do? I want that person to show compassion. What should I do? Let him break his leg. Okay, now, he knows pain. He now knows pain, horrible pain. So now when he sees somebody else who is a paraplegic, he has empathy for that person. So then that might work. But the person with broken arm may what? May not yet get the lesson. So he breaks the other arm. You know, who knows whatever the system may be. And sometimes the person will go throughout life and not achieve empathy, not achieve compassion, and just go by the wayside and not achieve what God wants to achieve because just didn't make it. And you fall away from being God's chosen person, you didn't accomplish what God wants you to accomplish, and that's the end of the, that particular person's story. And God failed in that case. He just failed, just couldn't do it. So, my only point again is that suffering might make a better person. Well, I it, think it's, it also goes from before that, it's that the strength of the person and the strength of the religion is what sometimes gets you through the suffering. Yeah, okay, that's part of the system. Now, that, I don't know that's okay. That, so what I'm saying is I don't think that the suffering necessarily is is the end. No, it, the end. it's it you know it's the building of the character before and that after. allows you to get through. Right. Okay. And and that's it, not necessarily then you know what comes out of that, but to be able to. Uh, well, how do we justify? God has to justify the suffering at some point. If you're the best guy ever at that point, then what's the point of suffering? You also have a purely empathetic person 
proof is going to be suffering. Just as you're not going to say, well, he sinned, therefore he's being punished. You're not going to say he's, he's, being, he's suffering, therefore she's, he or she's not empathetic. I mean, Absolutely correct. There might be other reasons for punishment. We didn't get through all that yet, but those are the first.